0: Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing day. Jesus, you came and you died on the cross for the sins of the world. Not for those of us who just speak English or Swahili or Spanish, but from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. You have purchased a people for your family, for your kingdom. Jesus, you tore that veil from top to bottom. That separates us from your heavenly father. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Speak to us today through your word. Bring comfort, bring healing, bring conviction. Jesus, glorify your name. And we thank you. We praise you. We ask all these things in your precious name, Jesus. And all the God's people said, Amen. You all may be seated. Paul, thank you so much. Once again, I just want to say welcome, teaching every one of you all to the church at Woodbine. Those online, those sitting way in the back, I can't see your faces, but I see silhouettes. Oh, waving. Thank you so much. Welcome to the church at Woodbine. We are here in the book of Acts. And Paul just wrote it. It's Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. And you might be wondering, oof, the book of Acts, what about Jesus and the resurrection? Because today, for us as Christians, is the greatest, best most important, biggest day of the year. Sorry, guys, it's not Christmas. It's not Thanksgiving. It's not 4th of July. It is today. A lot of us call it Easter Sunday. Some of us call it Resurrection Sunday because he is risen. Today's title is called The Beginning. Not the big inning, a cheesy pastor joke about baseball, but the beginning of the Apostle Paul. But more than that, it's the beginning of God's kingdom initiated and started by Jesus with his resurrection. A new covenant. A new way. He is the way. And right here in Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at a young man named Saul. After his encounter with Jesus, his name becomes Paul. And when you read scripture, it's amazing how many times when people come to know when they meet Jesus, he changes their name. Simon became Peter. Saul became Paul. He radically touches and transforms us. Now, I got a question for you guys. Who likes to do their taxes? Raise your hand if you like. We're in tax season, right? It's due on the 18th, am I right? So if you haven't done them, you better get busy. You got about a week. I spent about six hours the other night, went to bed at about 2 a.m. doing my taxes. And it reminded me, last year, I did my mom's taxes after she had passed away. And I got all of her receipts. And she had saved receipts since 1982. Here's the reason. The house we lived in in Jackson, Tennessee, part of the house was built in 1934, 1937. There's a hole right in the middle of the doorway. It's about this big because a shotgun went off and they had to fix it. So we left that hole there. There was an addition in the 60s. There was an addition in the 70s. And then there was an addition. My parents did this monster addition in the early 1980s. I love that place. Ten acres, it was in the country. It's not in the country anymore. It's surrounded by Walmart and Sam's and movie theaters and Jackson. But back when I was growing up, it was nothing but country. Our neighbors were deer and coyotes and foxes. It was hard to believe that when she moved out of that house two years ago to live with us before she passed away, we finally sold that house. And so last year, turning in all of those receipts from the huge addition in the early 80s, of her taxes, I drove down to Jackson with a stack of receipts about this big that she had meticulously kept, and I gave it to her accountant. He's like, wow, you did a lot of work. And I'm like, no, no, it wasn't me, it was my mom. And then I thought, I need to go visit our house. And a young family bought it, and we were told that they were transforming that house. So as I pulled up in the driveway, I got real emotional. The outside looked the same. And I wish I had pictures, but I don't. And I got there and there were carpenters there and the wife was there. She's like, oh, you need to see what we're doing. Come on in. And so I walked into that house. And seriously, guys, it had been 40 years since anything had been touched in that house. The same wallpaper was in the living room, all that stuff. But this family radically transformed inside that house. They had punched out walls, new floor, new paint. The kitchen didn't look the same. And you know what? I was kind of glad because it didn't feel like my mom's home anymore. But it was radically transformed. Just the other day, my brother sent me a picture. And before you put it up, John, this is what he said in a text Mom's Ohio 100 plus year old plant is still in the running. I thought the dogs destroyed it. Well, they did. But the bulb was reproducing. Pretty cool. When my mom moved out, my brother took a plant that was in her garden. And he transferred it to his home in Oak Ridge. And his dogs, they got like six dogs. As he said, he thought he destroyed it. He just took this picture. He sent it to me the other day. This plant, the bulb, is over 100 years old from Ohio. And it is resurrecting. New life. Hear the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. If you've closed your Bibles, turned your dumb phone off, you can turn it back on to Acts chapter 9. Real quick, for those who are visiting us today, welcome. We're so glad you're here. We are going through the book of Acts. We're not going line by line and verse by verse. But we are looking at major themes in the entire book of Acts. The context is this. Jesus has died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose from the dead, which is what we celebrate today in the church year. Today is Easter. We celebrate the fact that Jesus lives. After Jesus rose from the dead, he was with his his the followers for about 40 days. And he ate with them and they touched his hands and his side where he was pierced, proving to over 500 people that he was alive. Not just symbolically risen from the dead, not spiritually risen from the dead, but actually, as Noel said before he prayed, physically risen from the dead. He ate with them. He was no ghost. There was no hallucination. He was alive. And he told him when he ascended to heaven, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit and you will receive power. And you will be my witnesses to, to the ends of the earth, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And surely I am with you to the end of the age. And so we've been looking at Acts, and in the book of Acts, the church explodes from 120 people to thousands of people. And there's signs, and there's miracles, and there's wonders. There's also confrontation, and there's ethnic uh, strife. There's judgment within the church, and people die because they lied to the Holy Spirit. And there's also a lot of persecution. And if you're hearing that voice in the background, it's Andre translating in Spanish. And there's one man in particular, his name is Saul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a young leader who was very influential in the Jewish faith. He was so zealous for the God of Abraham that he was willing to persecute anyone who was trying to deviate from the Jewish faith. And the very first martyr, Stephen, in chapter seven And it says at the very end of chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, verse 58, this is what it says. While they were stoning Stephen, they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they stoned Stephen, Stephen asked the father, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they're doing. And then in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, this is what it says. It says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. And Acts continues in verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. He was the very first martyr who died for his faith in Jesus. And then Acts 8, verse 3, Saul, who will become Paul, however, was ravaging, say ravaging, ravaging the church. Now, it's not talking about a building, the people. He would enter house after house, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. Saul was zealous for God, but he was totally, completely deceived. He ravaged the church. And here in chapter 9, it's what Paul read to us in verse 1. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder. He was ravaging the church. He hated Christians. Dragging men and women out of their homes. Paul says in some of his letters that when he persecuted Christians, he forced them to blaspheme. What did he do? Burn them with an iron hook? Pluck their fingernails off their fingers? What did he do to force them to blaspheme? And I'm sorry for being kind of grotesque, but Saul was a wicked, evil, murderous man. And he thought he was doing God's will. This is the type of man he was. And he was extremely influential because when he went to the religious leaders, He asked for letters of authority to go to a foreign city, Damascus, and to find anyone who is of the way, which was the nickname, the derogatory nickname that Jewish people gave the Christians back then. Oh, they're people of the way. To drag them out of the synagogue, bring them back to Jerusalem, put them on trial, and to persecute them and put them in jail. That's the type of man this man was. Am I making sense? Woo, what an Easter sermon, right? Transformation. Here in this story, it says, while Paul, Saul, and the people, the men he was with, as they approached Damascus, it says that suddenly a light flashed around him. And he fell to the ground. And then right here in verse 4, Jesus, who had resurrected months before, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's a whole topic we could talk about. How is Jesus being persecuted? You see, Jesus is the head of his church. The church is his body. And when the church is persecuted, Jesus is persecuted. And Jesus, the living Christ, the living Jesus, who always has been and always will be, Because Jesus has always been on the throne. He is the second person of the Trinity. He always has been. He always will be. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He did die. He really did die physically. And three days later, he rose from the dead. Physically. And then he ascended to heaven and he sits right now today at the right hand of his father. We're talking about the Trinity. It's hard to explain. When we get to heaven, we'll be like, oh, I get it. Jesus shows up to Saul, this angry, zealous, religious leader of the Jewish faith who hated Christians. He was so deceived and so full of rage and hate. And Jesus knocks him to his feet, asking him, why are you persecuting me? How does Saul respond? And I love this. Who are you Lord. Now that word Lord right there does not mean that Saul gave his life to Jesus as Lord and Savior right there on the spot. But immediately within a nanosecond, Saul realizes he's not in charge, he is not Lord, and he does not command. And he's basically saying, at your service. Who are you, Lord? Jesus, not Jesus, Saul is humbling himself, and he asks, who are you? And Jesus says, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Jesus reveals himself to Saul in a miraculous way. Saul, later known as Paul, because he wrote about half the New Testament, he says that he was born spiritually kind of in an unnatural way. He physically, literally saw Jesus as resurrected, the last of the apostles. Paul says in one of his last writings of 2 Timothy, he says, this is a trustworthy saying, that Christ died for sinners and I am the worst of them. Saul went from this angry, ravenous, hateful, religious Pharisee to a humble apostle who got down on his knees in every way, saying, I am the worst of all sinners because I persecuted the church. Saul, Paul even says in the book of Romans, when he prays and grieves, when his heart breaks for Israel, his own people persecuted him for decades after he became a Christian. Paul himself said, who is Saul here? I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the salvation of my own people. God had given Saul such incredible love first for Jesus then for others that he was willing to lose his salvation for the salvation of the very people that persecuted him. Can you imagine that type of love? That type of transformation? That type of change in the life of this young man, Saul, right here? And Jesus tells him, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up. Go to the city, to Damascus, and you'll be told what to do. And he does it. It says here that the men who are with him, who are traveling with him, stood speechless. They were hearing sounds. They saw the light, but they couldn't understand anything. And it doesn't tell us how many men were with Saul. Two, three, six, ten, we don't know. Saul gets up and he can't see a thing. He's blind. He can see nothing. He is blind, and so these men have to take him to Damascus. And it says he was there blind for three days. And if you want to continue to read, you can later on. And he doesn't eat anything. He doesn't drink anything. Now, there's a lot of us that have gone through fasting during the time of Lent. I love to eat. And fasting, whew, I love to fast, too, kind of. I love the result of fasting, but I don't love the process of fasting. If you have fasted or if you've ever gone without food, you get headaches. At least I do. You get irritable, impatient, angry. And that's usually the excuse we use when we fast. I don't want to fast because I get real impatient and angry. Well, when we fast, the Lord's just opening your eyes to see what's really inside your heart. That's always there. Could you imagine not eating or drinking anything for three days? But could you imagine what's going through Saul's mind and heart? This is a Pharisee, someone who probably had the entire Old Testament memorized. He was trained in the greatest school of the Pharisees under a Pharisee named Gamaliel, which I'm pronouncing in Spanish. So Andre, good luck with that English translation. Saul loved God, but he was completely deceived. And he was full of anger and hate towards anyone who didn't see things the way he did. And Jesus encountered him on that road. Jesus had grace and mercy upon Saul. Jesus confronted him in a powerful, loving way, asking him, why? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul physically, emotionally, spiritually was slammed to the ground. And he asked, who are you, Lord? And Jesus had great grace upon him. Jesus had every right to judge and kill Saul right there on the spot. Every right to do so. Saul was a murderer. Saul forced people to blaspheme. Saul was full of anger and hate and unforgiveness. And Jesus poured out his great grace upon that man and radically transformed him on that road to Damascus. And for three days, I can imagine the Holy Spirit was reworking all the spiritual wires in Saul's brain and heart, opening the scriptures to him. You see, Saul, who then becomes Paul, says in several of his letters, the gospel I received, no one told me about except Jesus. When Saul had his encounter with Jesus, he was radically transformed. So what does this story about Saul have to do with the resurrection of Jesus. Everything. You see, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this was one of the first letters that Paul wrote as an apostle. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 5. John, if you could put it on. This is what Paul says. He says, for I passed on to you as most important, what was revealed to me, what I received that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he, rose, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, the scriptures for Paul was the Old Testament. There are over 300 prophecies written in the Old Testament about the Messiah, and Jesus fulfills them all. Think about it. Paul is saying, This is the gospel that Christ died on the cross, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. That is our gospel. It's not being a good person. It's not going to church. It's not helping and doing good to other people. It's not even loving your neighbor. All those things are important, but that's not the gospel. Our church and what we long for more than anything else is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he is God's son sent to us, the world, because the father loves the world and that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, for my sins, for the sins of the entire world. Because see, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Jesus took our sin upon his body and he suffered the most horrific death you could suffer on that cross, paying our penalty. I can imagine in this room, there are a lot of us here who have debt. We owe money on a house, on a car, maybe a TV, maybe clothes. We owe. And when that debt is paid up, how do we feel? We have a debt that we owe to our Heavenly Father because of our sin that we can never pay back. We can't be good enough. We can't be religious enough. We can't tell enough people about Jesus to be forgiven. It can only come through the precious grace and mercy of our Heavenly Father through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the only way. And Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians, I pass on to you what is most important. Christ has died, he was buried, and he's risen according to the Scriptures. A few verses down in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 11 through 19, Paul then goes on to describe, John, please put it up, please, where he goes on to say, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our proclamation is in vain. And this is how Paul talks about, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Keep going. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. John, could you go on? Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God, because we have testified wrongly about what God has raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sin. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. And if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, then we should be pitied more than anyone. If Jesus has never risen from the dead, I'm lying to you then. We are all still in our sins We have no hope, we have no faith, and we should be pitied above all people on this earth. That's if Christ has not been raised from the dead. I'm a huge sports fan. And last year when Tennessee beat Alabama in football, I was at the game and we went crazy. And while going crazy, I sat there and thought, why don't I go this crazy when I think about Jesus rising from the dead? Because what Jesus did rising from the grave is much more than kicking a a ball through a hoop or a goal or hitting a home run. He is risen. He lives. And like he did to Saul 2,000 years ago, the living Jesus today can touch and transform lives. Your life, my life, He can transform neighborhoods, cities, and nations because he is alive. I want to invite everybody to please stand. We celebrate the resurrection because Jesus is alive. He's a living Savior. There's a lot of you in here who are visiting and welcome. So glad you're here. There's a lot of faces here I know, and I know a lot of us know Jesus. We love Jesus. We worship Jesus. And if you love Jesus and these last songs of worship and praise, I just want to encourage you. Praise him. Worship him. Celebrate him. I do want to invite the worship team to come forward, please. But I also want to say this. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want to encourage you to do that today. It's very simple to do, but it will require your life. To put your faith in Jesus is simply say, Father, I am a sinner. And I confess my sin to you. And I confess and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. That he was buried and that you raised him from the dead. I confess him as Lord and I believe in my heart that God, you raised him from the dead. And I ask that you come into my life. I receive him like a gift. There are some of you who probably have put your faith in Jesus 30 times in your life, and now every six months you seem to drift away. And you think and feel inside that you've done it so many times, there's no way God will take you back. Well, let me tell you, if he came and visited Saul, the worst of sinners, and that's in Scripture, he can save you, and he will receive you again because no one can take us out of the Father's hands. As we worship, if you want prayer or need prayer, there'll be some of us over here in the Next Steps area. We would love to pray with you. Let us worship him. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. And Jesus, have your way amongst us now. Touch us, fill us, convict us, transform us the way you did Saul, and you made him Paul. We thank you that for all who are in Jesus, our new creation. We ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen and amen.